0: Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford Podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at, uh, at FBH. We're glad you're here with us. And, uh, and to you parents out there of uh, school-aged kids, happy summer. Uh, you did it. You're two days into summer, and they're not going back to school tomorrow, so figure it out. <laughs> it's just it's just a, yesterday, man. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be our entire summer. I'm going to work. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, so anyway, uh, we are in the midst of a series called uh, Campfire Stories, um, and I want you to think back for a second to times that you maybe have spent time around a campfire, spent time around a campfire with people who are talking and telling stories and that sort of thing. Um, There's something um, almost kind of mystical about sitting around a campfire, hypnotic even, right, as you look into the flames oftentimes, and and you can just kind of get lost in staring into a campfire. Um, it's my favorite smell. That may be weird, but you know, like after after you're done at a campfire and you've had all the s'mores uh, that you can handle, um, and then you go home and you got your... Your hoodie on and you smell your hoodie and it still smells like campfire my wife absolutely hates it it is my favorite smell in the entire world so after a campfire I'll like intentionally not wa- not wash that sweatshirt for a couple of days just so i can wear it again and be like oh, i love that smell that may be weird i don't know um don't know why i shared that either but <laughs> regardless i remember a specific time i was uh, i was in third grade and i was in i was in uh Cub Scouts. Any Cub Scout people out there in Cub Scouts? Yeah. So I was in Cub Scouts, um, which would have made me a wolf, I think, being in second grade. So pretty proud of that. Um, And every single year we uh, we had a camp out at this place called Scout Island. I don't know if that was actually what it, called, what it was called, but that's what we called it. Um, and so we had this camp out at Scout Island and uh, it was up in Merced. And Merced has this place called Lake Yosemite. Now it sounds beautiful. Really, it's just a super muddy, pretty gross and green and brown, nasty man-made lake. But to a second grader, Wolf in the Cub Scouts. I mean, this was like the coolest place ever. So we had to have a camp out there for two nights. We'd be there for three days, um, and I distinctly remember before or, or the the last night that we were there, we were sitting around a campfire, and um, Wayne Hull, one of the leaders there, um, decided it was time for him to tell a camp story, a campfire story, and uh, so. Bear in mind, I'm in second grade, so I'm like seven, maybe eight years old. Um, but then we have kids there all the way down to what we affectionately called tiger cubs, right? And tiger cubs are like five-year-old kids. And then all the way up to kids who were Weeblos, and I don't even know what type of animal a Weeblos is, but they're Weeblos, okay? It, it stands for Weeby Loyal Scouts, I know. For those of you in here who are like, I know what a Weeblos is, so do I, okay? Um, do your best, do your duty to God in this country to help other people, right? Um, anyway... So, so we're sitting around this, this campfire, and Mr. Hall starts telling this story. And again, we're by this lake, and um, there's like this little... I don't even know what you would call it. It's some man-made structure across the lake. There's a little bridge that goes out into it. I don't even know what it would be used for because it was too small and unnecessary to be like a lighthouse or anything like that. But there was like this small building out there. And so he decides that he's going to tell a camp story, campfire story to five-year-olds to about 13-year-olds about how a woman and her child used to live out there. In that, camp, in, that, in that outhouse, that no, wasn't an outhouse, in that house, but it's <laughs> a totally different story. In that house out there, and one night, the, the, the kid wandered out into the lake and drowned. And the mom went out after him. The mom couldn't find her baby, and the mom drowned too. And nights, much like tonight, if you're quiet enough, you can hear the mom crying and searching for her baby and i'm freaking out i'm seven years old and i'm like you kidding me right now like this is hard enough not sleeping in my own bed and now you're gonna tell me there's like a ghost lady on the lake who wails and cries on nights like this Uh uh-uh not okay dad we're going home um and so I just, I remember that I still vividly remember that that story. Um, I still vividly remember that night and not sleeping that night um, at all. Um, and I still vividly remember my mom having choice words with Mr. Hull the next morning uh, <laughs> regarding his choice stories or at least knowing his audience. Come on. I was seven. Um, but all that to say that's kind of the where we're at with these campfire stories if you were with us last week we told a story about um two bears coming out of the woods and mauling 42 young adult youths essentially um and uh and and this week we're going to be talking about a floating hand and so daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to be at so for those of you who follow along your bible on your phones you can go ahead and pull those out we'll get to that in just a second um but the starting place for campfire stories, what we have to recognize is as silly and kind of off the wall and ridiculous as some of these stories may be, and difficult to discern even as some of these stories may be, they are indeed all useful stories. And one of the ways that we can understand that is like we talked about last week by reading 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Because 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, all scripture is God breathed. Everybody say all scripture yeah, all scripture, right? Not just some scripture, not just the gospels, not just, not just the Pauline epistles or anything like that, all scripture. So Genesis through Revelation, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God, like we talked about last week, is breathed out by God. It's useful for the Christian. It equips us for Christian service. And it's also important to believe that what the Bible says is the basis for our belief and our belief about everything, everything it is that we believe. The Bible is the basis for the scripture is inspired. They are useful and 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 they are useful for equipping as well. So that being said. Um, we have to then come to the conclusion then that everything in Scripture is indeed God-breathed and useful, meaning seemingly ridiculous stories about she-bears is indeed useful to us, like we learned last week. I also want to take a second and, and, and just talk about a, uh, an email I got last week, or this week, last week, whatever. I got it five days ago regarding what it means, like what the Bible being inspired means for different translations of the Bible, right? Because the Bible is the inspired word of God, then obviously there has to be a correct translation of the Bible. There has to be a most correct translation of the Bible because if essentially, if everything in the Bible is inspired, there has to be some translation that is the absolute correct translation. And I mentioned a few different translations last week. So I mentioned the King James Version Bible. I, I referenced the, the ESV, that's the English Standard Version, and I always preach out of what we call the New International Version of the Bible. And so even last week, in in an hour an hour and fifteen minute setting here at church, we referenced three different translations of scripture. So what is the point of all of these different English translations of The Bible, obviously the best Bible would probably be the original writings, right? The ones that that were originally written, most of the original autographs, that's your theological words for the morning. Those are the words for manuscripts as original autographs. So most of the original autographs were written in Hebrew, which would make sense because the Bible is largely a, a history book, an inspired history book, but a history book of the Hebrew people. And there's a couple of books and a couple of sections of scripture that are actually written in Aramaic. So the first thing we need to concede is that the most reliable Bible is the original writings. And we simply don't have them anymore. They're not around anymore. I know for some of you that's shocking. But we don't have them anymore. We have perfect copies of them, but we don't have the absolute original ones anymore. And that's okay. On top of that, though, even if we did have them, I don't know about you, but I can't read biblical Hebrew or Aramaic. Anybody, any takers, biblical Hebrew or Aramaic? Get out of here with that. That's not, I'm a little rusty in my Aramaic. So they would pretty much be useless to me though, right? I wouldn't be able to read them. And, and even if somebody was reading them to me, how do I trust them that their translation is absolutely correct? So then what English translation will do? And why do we have so many different versions? It has everything to do with what we call readability. Okay? It has to be readable. And there are groups of people who believe that the best translation is the King James Version translation of the Bible. And that's okay. If you can read and understand the King James Version of the Bible, phenomenal. Go nuts. But by today's standards, it's almost unreadable. It's very difficult for people to discern what it is actually saying. But beyond that, the King, King James Version did a great job of translating it. But like every single translation, there are scribal errors and sometimes translation errors like we talked about last week. Where it talked about uh, the the, uh, we talked about the, it says youths, right? Or young, young children. But in actuality, they are, they are representatives probably between the ages of 19 and 25 of the city that they came from. And so that translation, while it was technically correct in the context in which we find it, probably wasn't the best fit there. But those who cling to the King James Version do so because it has beautiful language. And the language in it really is gorgeous. The King James Version was translated in, or published anyway in 1611. So it's been around forever, which is why they had the new King James Version to update the original King James Version. But it was all the, and, and there's a strong belief amongst those people from the KG, K not KGB, KJV, different, not necessarily Russian, okay, different. But they believe that that translation is perfect. But again, the readability of it is really tough. Here's an example from Job. Here's the example from Job in the King James Version. Okay. The noise thereof showeth concerning it, the cattle also concerning the vapor. Just rolls off the tongue, right? <laughs> and, it's, and it's absolutely true. And the translation is correct, especially in 1611. This way it made a whole lot of sense to people who were reading it. They could have definitely understood that, but it's just hard to read. And if you can read and understand it, great. But luckily we have some other options. There are many versions like the ESV. There's the NASB. ESV is English Standard Version. NASB is New American Standard Bible. Those are what we would call a word-for-word translation of Scripture, meaning that as the translators were working, they translated every word for every word. This makes for a very literal translation, but it doesn't read quite as smoothly either. Here's the same verse from the ESV. ESV, it's crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. Okay, so we're understanding it more now, right? All of a sudden, this this makes a little bit more sense. And I know it's difficult. It's not in context. You're like, what is crashing? What are we talking about here? We'll get to that in just a second. Okay, but that's the that's the ESV. It is a word for word uh, translation from an ancient autograph, and it can still oftentimes be difficult to discern. But or to, to discern. But it's an incredibly reliable version of the Bible. When I do my personal study, this is what I do my personal study out of. Cause it's a word for word translation. The next version of the Bible is what we use every morning on a Sunday morning. If we're teaching anywhere in any of our classes, it's what we use. And it's the, it's the NIV. And the NIV is what I would consider a thought for thought translation. Okay. So the NIV, what the NIV does, it doesn't completely skirt the literal translation of the Bible. And it doesn't go a, go all the way over to kind of a, a summary of scripture or anything like that. It's kind of right in the middle. And that's one of the reasons we use it is because it's a reliable translation, but it's also very readable. Okay, so the NIV translation. This is how the same verse would read in NIV: His thunder announces the coming storm; even the cattle make known its approach. And all of a sudden, we're like, "Oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. I can understand that now. I get that now." And the last version is the NLT translation. Sometimes the message is a little bit, a little bit further further down the line than the New Living Translation is. And the focus of this translation is strictly readability. They're not concerned with with uh, a literal translation at all. It's They want the people to understand what it is, the Bible, the thought that the Bible was kind of trying to get across. And so if you're a, someone in here this morning who's like, man, I have tried almost every translation of the Bible. Anytime I open it, it's incredibly difficult for me to read. Uh, I just want the heart of what God is trying to get across to his people. And I want to be able to understand it. Great, New, New Living Translation may be it. And this is the same thing, same verse in the New Living Translation. It says, the thunder announces his presence. The storm announces his indignant anger. All of a sudden, you don't really even need the rest of the context to be able to understand what this is saying, right? It has increased readability. Can we go back to the King James Version Real quick, and let's just juxtapose those two. So, the noise thereof showeth concerning it, the cattle also concerning the vapor, right? To go back to NLT. The thunder announces his presence, the storm announces his indignant anger, right? So, we can see that these are two, I mean, the verses, all of a sudden we can understand the verse in NLT versus King James, but really, the heart of the message is the same thing so wherever it is that you fall on that spectrum of like no i want a bible that's completely literal i'm concerned with in 16 like king james version it's a very it's a very uh kingly type of type of writing with thous and nasts and therefores and all these things that are used and that's great Maybe it's the ESV or the NASB. It's a word for word translation that you can actually understand that's in modern language or maybe simply it's NIV. And that's honestly why the majority of the world chooses NIV as their translation because it gives kind of the best of both worlds. So while the entirety of the Bible is inspired, you have to decide what it is that you need out of your translation. But it begs the question then, which version of the Bible is the correct or best version of the Bible? My standard answer to this question is, the translation you read is the best translation for you. And for some people like, "Ah, that's a cop-out. Give me your real answer. You want my real answer? I study out of ESV. Take from that what, uh, uh, what you will. Okay. But that being said, if you're not opening your Bible at all, That's probably my greater concern than which translation you should buy just to get dusty on your shelf. You know what I mean? So my standard answer is whatever Bible that you're reading, as long as it's actually the Bible, great, read it, do it. Uh, And so that's just a 30,000-foot overview of scriptural translations. Um, And and it's really addressing an email. But that being said, it kind of really does play into where we're going with this entire series. Yeah, because this entire series really is, uh, while while the stories are fun and we're going to get some takeaways from all the stories and that sort of thing, the Bible real or, or the series really is intended to focus on the fact that everything in Scripture is inspired by God and it is useful to us. And so your Bible, in the same way, is useful to you, regardless of the translation that you have. I'm more concerned with you reading it than I am with the exact translation that, that it is that you're reading. So like I said, we're in Daniel chapter five and we're gonna have to zoom through this because last week our, our, uh, our story was about two verses long, right? This week, our story is 31 verses long. So we'll get you out of here before dinner, I promise. Um, <laughs> that was a, the most nervous laugh I've ever heard <laughs> from this group of people. I'm like, ah, it's a joke, right? So, uh, go ahead and open that up. Daniel, he's an old, it's, an, it's an Old Testament book. that's found next to other major prophets, meaning Daniel is the mouthpiece of God at this time. In the same way that last week, Elisha was the mouthpiece of God at this time. So we're starting in verse 1 and going through, through uh, verse, verse 31, but we're, we'll stop at 6 right now. It says this, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly... The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, if this isn't a campfire story, I don't know what a campfire story is, man. I read this and I'm like, okay, that was crazy. We got a king, we got all of his buddies. He goes and grabs some ancient artifact that, that you know his father had taken from, from, a, from a temple and then they're drinking out of it and all of a sudden the ghost hand appears out of nowhere and starts writing on the wall. Man, tell that one to your kids tonight before they go to bed. <sighs> Woo! And then put a rubber hand on the wall as a joke. Don't do that, don't do that. So several questions, though, come up here, even in these first six verses. And we don't have time to hit all of the questions, but the first thing we need to figure out in the context is the context of the story is being told in and who exactly King Belshazzar is. Because out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, we have this guy named Belshazzar. No introduction, no conclusion after the last words, um, after the last words of this chapter are spoken. He's here for one chapter in the Bible which I believe comes into play later on and is one of the keys to actually understanding this entire story. So a random king shows up after four chapters of Daniel where the entire focus is on King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if, you've, if you want more context for this story, you're gonna have to go back and read Daniel 1 through 4, okay? Because Daniel 1 through 4, the entire focus is on this king, is on King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he was the king, who uh, who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Right where many people believe the first physical manifestation of Jesus is also. So that's exciting. You can go back and go back and read that. He was uh, Nebuchadnezzar was focused primarily on expanding his kingdom, and he's known as one of the greatest kings of the Neo Babylonian era. So after this great king. Still regarded as one of the greatest kings. After this great king, we turn the page and we see a king that we know very little about. And one of the things that we can pull from it is, is it really actually reminds us that Daniel's primarily, Daniel was primarily concerned with the spiritual conflicts between God and his people and his messengers and the children of this world. So rather than simply giving us the details of Jewish chronology and even world history of his time, Daniel wants to focus our hearts on the spiritual conflict between God and his people or God and people who don't agree with him. And that's one reason why the story of Belshazzar is introduced and concluded so abruptly. No word of explanation, no word of background or context, just one chapter and he's gone. So let me say really, really quickly that there, there's debate, many people debate the issue as to who Belshazzar actually was. Because if we look at the list of kings in Babylon, there was no king over all of Babylon named Belshazzar. So there was no supreme king named Belshazzar. And so there have been a ton of speculations over who this king actually is. Some suggested that, uh, that he was the evil Merodach who was overthrown in a palace coup in 560 BC. But there seems to be actually a, a better suggestion than that. There was a man named Belsar-Usur. Say that five times fast. Who was the son of the last king of Babylon, the king Nabonidus. I know you guys are like, there's a lot of words here. It's okay, glaze over this. We'll get to the point in just a second. So he was unpopular In Babylon. So he moved his capital to another city and apparently he left his son Belshazzar behind to rule. Now, Belshazzar was also incredibly unpopular. We know that because in the night in which the slain people of the city rejoiced, it's interesting that this man, Belshazzar, promises to make Daniel not the second man in the kingdom, and we'll get to this in a sec, but he promises to make him the third man in the kingdom which would fit nicely, which means that Belshazzar wasn't actually the king. Belshazzar was probably number two in charge. His dad was probably number one, but Belshazzar was overseeing this. So the idea of him being a monarch, being the king still fits. So whatever the case is, we see a clear contrast between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to go back, like I said, and read all about Nebuchadnezzar, you can. But ultimately what we need to understand is eventually Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses. He humbled himself and he believed in the God of, uh, the God of Israel. So the thing that we need to pull from, from this entire, these entire first verses though is that Belshazzar is exceedingly arrogant. Belshazzar is exceedingly arrogant. In the first few chapters of Daniel, God is incredibly patient with Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He waits long for Nebuchadnezzar to learn the spiritual lesson, but against Belshazzar, as we're going to learn, his judgment is incredibly quick. I mean, he lays the hammer down. So you remember so far, God has kind of showed his sovereignty over nations and individuals uh, in and after chapter, chapter one. In Daniel one, God shows his sovereignty by giving wisdom to his servant, Daniel, to interpret and save the other faithful servants. In Daniel 2, the interpretation of the dream is supplied. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream is interpreted by Daniel. In chapter 3, there's three witnesses, right? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, specifically Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the way we mostly know them, are spared by God in the fiery furnace. And then we also see in chapter 4, like I said, the confession of Nebuchadnezzar of the sovereignty of God. So, even this heathen king, Nebuchadnezzar, confesses the sovereignty of God. And so, God's sovereignty is a theme throughout the entire book of Daniel. But in verse one, it's clear that Belshazzar has blatantly disregarded his responsibility as a monarch. Completely disregarded him. Whereas he ought to be concerned about defending his kingdom, rather than that, he's thrown a lavish feast. And it's not so much the size of the feast as it is the motive that's actually behind the feast to exalt himself, right? Kind of sounds like a number two, somebody who really, really wants to be in charge, really, really wants to assert his authority, really, really wants people to know how important he actually is. And so because of that, guys, look at this feast, look at this party that I am able to throw. And so really that's what he concerned, he's concerned with, to kind of exalt himself and be the center of attention, even though his enemies at this point are at the gate. Secondly, secondly, we see that Belshazzar is blatant and deliberate and public in his blasphemy of God. So Belshazzar not only misrules, but he blasphemes the living God. Those instruments, those goblets that they got, From the temple, which would have been reserved to the most holy of purposes. He draws out of the treasury to show his friends how important he is. That, look, I got my hands on these goblets that we took from the temple of God. You guys want a party out of them? Sure, let's do it. So there is a blaspheming that's going on there. Those instruments and the people who those instruments came from, the people of Israel, represented the presence and the power of God, and he used them for debauchery. The theologian said his heart was a factory of rebellion against God. His heart was a factory of rebellion against God. And thirdly, in verse 4, we see that his sinful heart has caused him complete and total spiritual blindness, It wasn't necessarily just the wine that night that caused Belshazzar's blindness. It was his own heart. He anticipated no judgment from God and no judgment from man. But as we're about to learn, it came and it came quick. They had the audacity to drink from those goblets. And assumed that nothing was going to happen to him because he was in charge of this place. Because he was an important figure. And he wanted to make sure that everybody knew how important he actually was. But as we read in verses 6 and following, his arrogance quickly fades into fear and trembling. Which to be fair, I would be pretty terrified as well right like i hope i never find myself in a situation where i blaspheme god so much that a random hand shows up in my office and starts writing words to me that i really don't understand now if that happened i would be terrified and i would be running out of my office as quickly as i can hopefully my pants were still dry cuz it would be terrifying it would be absolutely terrifying so he's super arrogant Super arrogant, but that fades incredibly quickly as we continue to see and read in verse 7, which goes like this. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Right? Because that's the most the number two can do. The third highest ruler in the kingdom. When all the king's wise men came in, they could not read the writing or tell the, king, tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. This guy's out of options. He doesn't know what to do. All he knows is he saw a ghost hand show up and start writing words on the wall and no one can tell him what it means. But then, ladies, this is a nod to you. The queen shows up, right? The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar has found to, or was found to have a keen mind in knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So here we have the queen who's like, look, she's been around. She has a history. She's got context. She understands where Nebuchadnezzar had been. She understands where the Babylonians had been. She gets it. She's been there. And so she hears all this commotion. And I can just see her like, she's a little sleepy, probably wasn't part of the party, opens the door. She's in her nightgown. She's like, shh. Wait, what's going on? Call Daniel. Call Daniel, you dummy. He'll take care of it, right? So the queen tells him that. I mean, that's the... the, uh, P-A-V, the Peter Anderson, P-A-T translation. Um, Don't read that one, by the way. Anyway. So, um, don't be alarmed, uh, he'll do all the things. Where am I? Verse what? 13. Thank you, everybody. So Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, and I love this response from Daniel. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So something we need to know about Daniel at this point. Daniel is probably pretty advanced in age, and he's been on the sidelines, okay? This is obviously someone once Nebuchadnezzar had left. He lost... Kind of that uh, the, the status that he had in and amongst the kingdom so much so that the, the person who was ruling, the person in charge of that area, didn't even know who he was, right? He needed mom to come in and, and say, hey, bro, this, go call this guy, okay? So Daniel, is, he's pretty advanced in age, and I love that he doesn't pull punches here. He doesn't. He's like, you know what? Keep your stuff. I'll take care of it, right? Great, solid, I'm in. So the king, he calls us counselors. And for all that worldly wisdom, they are blind to the things of God. They're even blind to God's judgment. They can't read his judgment even when it comes. And so Babylon, the type of rebellion against God is humbled before his judgment. So what do they do? They finally start listening to the queen. They finally start listening to the queen. As a quick side note, guys, we tend to do this a lot, okay? Okay where we see a problem and we try to fix it in our head and then we try to fix it with our mouths and then we try to fix it with our hands. And then once we have broken it in all three of those ways, then finally we're like, hey, honey, what do you, what, what do you think about that? Right? And then all of a sudden the answer is sitting right in front of us, right? And wives, most of the time you're just so calm and patient and loving. And you're like, honey, I was just waiting patiently for you to ask me how to fix that. Let me tell you how I think it should be. And then it just gets taken care of and it's a wonderful thing. No, but legitimately, legitimately, guys, we do this a ton, right? We're like, okay, I, I can call this buddy and this buddy and this buddy and this buddy. And really all we need to do oftentimes is just be like, hey, hon, can you just, what do you think about this? And it gets handled. That's just an aside. I don't think that's actually the reason for that. But the queen, come on, let's go. Anyway. Um, So they call the queen. um, And because the queen has a solution here, she says, look, there's a guy who lives in the kingdom who'll be able to help you out. So he goes and he gets Daniel and asks him if he understands the spirit of the gods. So again, Belshazzar has no clue the God singular that he is dealing with, the monotheism that he is dealing with, the single God that he is dealing with. He has absolutely... No clue. And an aging Daniel says, yep, I can help you out, but keep all the fancy thing you promised me. I don't need your stuff. Show me what God is doing here, and I'll take care of it because obviously you have no clue. Right? So one of the things that we need to recognize from this then is in this instance, Daniel is willingly bold. Daniel is willingly bold. This shouldn't come as a shock to anyone who knows Daniel, who knows about Daniel. Daniel slept in a lion's den, by the way, for those of you who are trying to get context here. Daniel slept in a lion's den. And for those of you curious, you know, we see those, those like student or kid ministry uh, areas of Daniel in the lion's den. There's like the friendliest, most beautiful lions in the world. And the lions are like kind of smiling like, what? Uh, I'm sure the lions are really angry. Um, And then Daniel's like this young, strapping, dapper, like 18-year-old with long flowing hair and all this stuff. And to be fair, Daniel, the Bible tells us that Daniel was a pretty handsome dude. But Daniel was in his 80s when he slept in the lion's den, okay? He He wasn't like a spring chicken anymore. He wasn't a guy who was like wrestling lions to keep their mouth shut or anything like that. He's in his 80s and he's like... I mean, from reading Daniel, I consistently get the idea of like, hey, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it, right? You want me to say, I'll go in the lion's den. You're going to shut the mouths, right, God? Cool? We good? Sweet. I'm going to take a nap, right? Like that's really the understanding that I get from But But this shouldn't shock us that Daniel is bold in this instance, really because of his rap sheet. Man, this guy has a backbone. So he served for 70 years Under a regime in Babylon that was hostile at worst and ambivalent at best towards the things of God. He's an incredible Bible character that honestly gets a little bit overlooked, right? When we think of Bible characters that start with the letter D, we usually go to David. And I don't know why we do that because that dude was all jacked up. Right, Daniel really is the—he's an incredible Bible character. He's one of the very few people, actually, in Scripture who that he doesn't have a massive character flaw attached to his name. I mean, think about all the other stories, all the other people that we have in Scripture with character flaws. Right? Let's just—we'll go over it real, real quickly. Noah was a drunk. Right? Uh, Abraham slept with other women. Uh, His wife allowed him to sleep with other women. Jacob was essentially a pathological liar. David concealed his affair by killing Bathsheba's husband. Solomon had upwards of a thousand women that he regularly slept with. The list goes on and on. On and on. And so when we look at Daniel, it tells us no one could find fault in him. Actually, Daniel 6, 4, it says, At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And this guy is one of the few people in Scripture that, man, other people had to make stuff up about him in order to get him in trouble. Like, Daniel, this shouldn't shock us, the way that he is treating this, that he is willingly bold here. This guy is a rock star, completely and totally. But the the story continues in verse 18. It says this, Your majesty, The most high God, this is Daniel speaking. The most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant, And hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. That's Daniel chapter four, by the way. Okay, Daniel chapter four. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself Though you knew all of this, instead you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds his hand in your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that roped the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parsin. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. He says that two times. Anything, something is written more than two times means it's incredibly important. Or written more than one time means it's incredibly important. So remember that. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting Paris. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple and a gold chain was placed around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. That's essentially what those words mean. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Look, we have, we have weighed your kingdom. We have numbered who you are and the way that you are leading this kingdom. This kingdom. The way that you are not honoring God. And so we have weighed that. God has weighed that. And now because of your refusal to love God, because of, your, because of your, your, your blatant disregard for who God is in your life, your kingdom is going to be divided. And so the hammer fell. And the end that we hear about Belshazzar is that he was slain in the end of chapter 5. So while Daniel goes on, he tells him all these things, probably in a sense, Belshazzar is probably pretty relieved here. That it didn't, didn't mean that he was going to be mauled by a couple of she-bears or anything like that, right? Like that's not what it was. He does the opposite of what Daniel told him, which is give him the fancy clothes, give him the money, give him the shiny things. Um, but he, so he gave them to them instead of other people. And Daniel tells him about Nebuchadnezzar and how he humbled his heart and gave it over to God. Beyond that, he tells him of his faults. Daniel tells him of his arrogance. Daniel tells him all of the things that he was doing wrong, his hard heart, essentially, that he has decided to act against God. And because of that, ultimately, Belshazzar was killed. It's a tough reminder to all of us that Daniel was not his judge, but God is their judge. God is their judge. We love to take this, this judging piece into our hands. And we talked about this a little bit and the Bible doesn't say that series, but we t- love to take it into our hands, not, not with the people who belong to the family of God, which is the biblical way to judge one another, by the way. If you, want, if you feel like judging people, start looking at the people you're sitting next to rather than the people who are not sitting in churches, people who do not know who God is. We love taking that piece into our hands. But Daniel recognized that that wasn't his job. Daniel simply did what he was asked. He used his spiritual gift to do what was needed at the time and left the rest up to God. That's all he did. It's the same way that Elisha did this last week. It wasn't last week that Elisha did it, but we talked about Elisha doing it last week where Elisha calls down a curse, Elisha curses them in the name of the Lord. And he was done. And then God took care of the rest. This is the same thing we have with Daniel. Where God says, or Daniel says, look, I'm gonna say my peace. You've blasphemed against God, but I did exactly what was asked. I used my spiritual giftings in order to understand what it was that God was doing in the midst of, of you and your people here. I'm going to take my purple robe and I'm going to go home. And that's what Daniel did. But after Daniel went home, Belshazzar was killed. And it's a reminder to all of us that God sees injustice and deals with it in his own way and in his own time. God recognizes it. Now it's not to say that we need to sit on our hands, church, because there are injustices in the world that are currently happening that we need to be a part of. It's to serve the world, portion of our vision statement it's the love people version of our vision statement to be able to love god love people and serve the world means there are people in this world who simply can't help themselves and it is our responsibility as a church not to shake our head and get frustrated because they're going to go use my money on drugs it's our responsibility to figure out the best way to help those people and this last week, I got an opportunity. There's a, uh, a friend of mine who lives up in Merced who started a nonprofit. It's called Restore Merced. Um, and then another friend of mine, uh, I was with them and I was helping them with some stuff for Restore Merced. And one of the things that Restore Merced does is they meet people where they are, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of addiction, in the midst of homelessness, in the midst of broken families, all of those things. And they allow them to apply for a job. And the job's a super basic job. They got a massive grant from uh, from HUD, the Housing and Urban Development Government, right? And so they got a huge grant from them. And so they pay guys to walk through Merced and pick up trash. But part of their employment is that after they are done picking up trash, they have to go to classes from then on. From noon at well, one o'clock after the lunch to about four o'clock, they have classes that teaches them things about Finances, teaches them their Bible, teaches them how to interview for jobs, teaches them how to get a trade, teaches them all of these different things, life skills. Because, because what happened was is that my friend Matt, who started this nonprofit, saw the brokenness and depravity that was happening in the midst of humanity. And so because of that, he said, I'm not just gonna throw money at a problem. Because throwing money at a problem only begats the problem over and over and over again. It's a cycle that is hard to get out of. And so Matt said, you know what? I'm gonna do the hard thing. I'm gonna start this nonprofit and do my best to get people from the gutter into a job and back with their family. Oftentimes these people have been incarcerated, right? So he's dealing with ex-cons on a regular basis, which is incredibly difficult for them. But these people are committed to turning their lives around. And he's not shy about sharing why it is that he does this. He does this because of the fact that he loves God. And because of the fact that he loves God, he needs to be the hands and feet of him. He needs to utilize his spiritual gifts to discern what it is that God wants him to do in Merced. And God wants him in Merced to help alleviate the homeless population and point people back to Jesus. That's what he's doing. He was simply willing to step in to that space. But God sees injustice. God knows injustice. And God will deal with injustice in this world or in this lifetime or in eternity. It will get dealt with. That's not our responsibility to judge those people, though. It's our responsibility to figure out what it is that God is doing and get on board with it. It's apparent in the first nine verses here that Daniel had been forgotten. In his age, he's moved to the sidelines, like I said. Perhaps Belshazzar and his father, perhaps they, like kings before him, have chosen young counselors and spurned the wisdom of age and have gone after young men who would tell them that they wanted to hear. But whatever the case is, Daniel's on the sidelines. But Daniel used to be a man of incredible influence once and he doesn't even seem to be remembered by the contemporaries of Belshazzar in the court. We have a picture here of a king who was unteachable. Belshazzar, we're told in verses two through four, was clearly a man who had learned nothing from the history of God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. He's arrogant and foolish. But one thing we have to understand is that God Rules and he overrules nations, he overrules men. He'll bring his own justice in his own way and in his own time. And we must never doubt that the judgment of God will come because the judgment of God will come. This passage teaches us that we may never presume on the grace of God and the patience of God. Belshazzar, a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, had seen God humble his father, his grandfather, his great ancestor, the great builder of Babylon, and yet his heart was proud and hard and arrogant, and he hadn't learned the expensive lesson that his grandfather had been taught. But there was one in the court who remembered it, which was the queen. And so the thing that I want us all to walk away from here understanding is that God will use you as you're willing to be used. God will use you as you're willing to be used. Daniel could have easily said, you know what? That's something I used to do. I'm tired. I don't have the strength. I don't have the energy to do that anymore. Find somebody else. But Daniel knew this wasn't him simply saying yes to a king. This was him saying yes to the king. This was him saying yes to God. And so because of that, he he allowed himself... To be used. The Lord uses us who, like Daniel, are just seeking to do what's right in the eyes of God. God uses us like an arrow in his quiver. And even though we may feel obscure and sometimes maybe insignificant, maybe you're serving on a team here at the church. And you're just like, you know what? Nobody appreciates me. Nobody appreciates the time that I put in. It's frustrating. It's hard. It's difficult. They're asking me to do different things and I'm, I'm done with it. We can be used to deliver the arrows of God wherever it is that we are, wherever it is that we're serving. Imagine what it would look like church if we simply said yes to doing what it is God wants us to do to live lives that are biblically measured and seek community in our ranks so we can impact those ranks outside of our community. What that would look like. God would use obscure people, us as obscure people who simply call on his name in order to impact the world in massive ways. There is an entire world world out there who desperately needs to hear and feel the love of God. Amen, church? All right, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And, and God, we thank you for Daniel and the example that he was of simply being willing to say yes to you, simply being willing to step into the things that you were doing, to use his spiritual giftings, to be able to discern your words. And God, as strange as the beginning of this story really is, it points us to the fact that, God, you're going to deal with injustice in your own time. In this lifetime or for eternity, you're going to deal with it. And our responsibility is to simply get on board with whatever it is that you're doing. That's our job in the same way that Daniel did that here. And so father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the jobs that are around us that need to get done. The things that we could step into, the places we could step into to serve you better. And maybe God, that's not even in the church. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not in the church. Maybe it's out in the community, father, places where we simply say, you know what, there is a hurting world out there. And I want to be part of the solution, not just complaining about the problem. Maybe it's that God, maybe it's, Maybe it's going to places like Rainbow Acres and God, I pray that you would continue to protect our team as they travel there and serve you and others while they're there. But maybe it's something, maybe it's going overseas. I don't know what it is, God, but I pray that you would elevate our sight lines above the the day-to-day to be able to understand where you would have us, where we would be, where we should be, where our spiritual giftings really do get to take full force. And we understand that that's exactly where you would have us. God, I pray you would elevate those sidelines. And beyond that, Father, I pray that there's those in here today who don't yet know you. God, I pray that that they would just follow along with me as we pray the ABCs every single weekend here that we admit, believe, and choose. The first one is A, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. God, I admit that I mess up every single day, that I am a sinful person and I'm tired of it, God. Redeem me. And it be that we believe, Father, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross on our behalf so we could indeed be redeemed, so we could be with you for eternity, so we could serve you now. And see that we would choose to follow you every single day of our lives. Father, burn and implant into our hearts and our spirit what that would be for us. How we serve you every single day of our lives. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son and we thank you for your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you all. We will see you next week. Go find some air conditioning. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.